0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing that's shakespeare's macbeth you know every headstone in a cemetery represents a person they had to be a a baby once they were potty trained had to learn to use a spoon i bet they had butterflies in their stomach on the first day of school They had all the same feelings and hopes and hurts that you and I do. And if they lived long enough to be self-aware, they probably felt the same way that you and I do about death. That it's an abstract concept. It's far away and it happens to other people. You know, maybe they considered that everyone dies eventually, but they still felt indestructible. Certain that they had a long time. Or at least certain that old age would take a long time. But everyone buried here, whether old or young, poor or rich, weak or strong, janitor or CEO still succumbed to the inevitable reality of death. You know, and so will we. You know, maybe a harsh truth like this can shock us out of complacency. Maybe a harsh truth like this can teach us some of the greatest truths in life. (laughs) <laughs> I'm excited. Well, we are here for one purpose and one purpose only—to elevate Jesus. With everything that we do, we elevate Jesus. At school, we elevate Jesus. Very nice. Very nice. Well, welcome back to the greatest night of the week. We are diving back into Ecclesiastes. We're only spending a few weeks there, but we've been discussing. Solomon's wisdom. You see, the Bible takes a very sober, a very lucid, a very realistic take on life because it's truth. Unlike a lot of preachers that are always trying to paint a facade that everything's okay, that everything's going to go well for you as long as you follow these principles that we outline, no, Scripture is actually very clear and very candid and very blunt And Solomon, in his wisdom, takes life and puts it on trial. And he criticizes it, and he pokes it, and he prods it, and he asks life, why are you this way? And what is the point for all that we're working to, all the hard labor, all the stress that we go through all our lives, what does it total up to? And right there in his introduction, he gives the conclusion he'll give us at the end, and it's that vanity Vanity, everything is vanity. And the word vanity there is the word hevel in Hebrew. And it doesn't mean meaningless. Let's not misinterpret it. Hevel means a mist, a vapor, smoke, an illusion. So everything that we're striving for in life is hard to grab onto, like a vapor. It, it's not dependable, it doesn't hold weight, it's hard to see through, it's mysterious. Once you think that you've got a good grip on things, it changes. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And he's come to this conclusion through a long search. He's gonna go through 12 chapters, but he defends this conclusion that everything is hevel based on three premises. One, time erases everything. Two, death is inevitable. And three, life can be random. And tonight we're looking at the second one. And it's not a mistake that in Solomon's poem that he includes, that there is a time for everything. We read it last week. These verses are so critical in chapter 3, 1 through 17. The very first in his list is that there is a time to be born and a time to die. He places the reality of the cycle of birth and death at the very top of his life's ongoing seasons. This is an inescapable truth. And he dives into it. He wrestles with it. We're going to do a quick survey of Ecclesiastes tonight. Turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Cut them in half. If you're in Psalms or Proverbs, go right. If you're in Isaiah, go left. Remember, Solomon is someone who pursued wisdom, and God gave it to him in abundance. And with godly wisdom, continued to pursue wisdom. And so one of the first questions he's going to ask in the book of Ecclesiastes, as he wrestles with the reality of death, is he's going to ask, does having great wisdom give us an upper hand on death? Does that give us some measure of control? In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he answers his question outright. Chapter 2, let's look at verse 15. He says, yet I perceived that the same event happens to both of them. I rewind to verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? So does wisdom give us an upper hand on death? No. What Solomon believed was life's cheat code doesn't even give him an upper hand. He asked the same thing of righteousness. Does living righteously give you an upper hand on death? No, it doesn't. We jump forward to chapter 3. Let's look at 3.19. He talks about how humans are so much more significant than animals, than the beasts of the field. So shouldn't humans have a more honorable existence and leave in a more honorable way? Chapter 3, verse 19, what does he say? He says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. And they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and all to dust will return. So after all this stress, after all this hard work, what does it add up to? Turn to chapter 5, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. But he has nothing in his hand naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what is gain is there to him who toils for the wind? In the same way we're born, naked and having nothing, that's how we'll die. In fact, in, in chapter 6, he says, everything that we've gained at death just gets passed on to somebody else. We don't, we don't even get to enjoy it. After all of our life's hard work, even if man's wealth and honor are from God himself, it's cut short by death. And Solomon comes to this conclusion that despite having wisdom, despite following the rules and amassing riches, despite doing everything within our power to fend off death, we can still be snuffed out unexpectedly. Turn your Bibles to chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at evil times when it suddenly falls upon them. Do you hear his frustration? An evil net, a snare, it falls on them suddenly. No one knows the time or the hour that they'll die. And then he sort of does this, this montage And he parades before us all the things that people try to put stock into. In chapter 4, he talks about how people pursue being envied by other people. And it comes up having very little meaning in the reality of death. In chapter 4 also, he talks about making life about hard work or seeking popularity. In chapter 5, amassing wealth. In chapter 7, chasing after righteousness or chasing after wickedness. Also in chapter seven, building a notable reputation, but the unavoidable destiny of death renders all of these as hevel. They're just missed, they're temporary, they're an illusion, they're not satisfying. When I was 16, I was driving and my vehicle had a 30-gallon gas tank and even at $1.49, it cost me like 60 bucks to fill up, but I love driving. And so I was looking for a way to make money, and an old couple in our church asked me and my best friend if we wanted to rake leaves. And we were like, sure. And I'd been to their house a few times. We took it on. They said, we'll give you 50 bucks. And I was like, I'm in. Let's go. So early one morning, me and Anthony, we show up at their house, and we rake leaves. And we rip out dead trees. We break out limbs. And we are like going to town into the dark. The next morning, we show up again, and we were raking and raking. Their yard was huge, way bigger than I expected. And raking and raking and raking and raking. And suddenly around lunchtime, they came out, and they were like, you guys are doing such a good job. We decided to give you 10 extra dollars. And we're like, okay, let's keep going. And we started, it was getting late again. And we're like, this is going to turn into a three-day project. So we ran and got his cousins and brought them back. And they came out finally to pay us before they went to bed, because we were still hard at work. And they gave us a single check of $60 to split. There was nothing left to do but laugh. It was so comical. And late that night, we left their driveway with 92 giant stuffed black trash bags on the corner from their yard. And we left with $30 each after, gosh, 30 hours of work or something. It was crazy. You know, it was amazing that we had put all this work in for something that seemed like it was going to be this satisfying, and when we actually received it, it ended up being hardly satisfying at all. And what Sol- the picture that Solomon is painting here is that we will spend our entire lives pursuing this job position, trying to have this much money, trying to have this big of a house, trying to have this notoriety, Try to be married to this person and have the the Hollywood marriage. This don't work. People will spend their whole lives working and striving. They'll miss out on their families. And at the end, whenever they take account of their lives, it wasn't nearly as satisfying for all the work they put in. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. Just like Anthony and I, with our work. But it's not even just death. In chapter 12, turn there with me. He unpacks that even in the years before death, those years rob someone of the enjoyment of the gains that they sacrificed their whole life to have. And he uses metaphors to present the aging process, showing the deterioration of the mind and the body. And he's making a painful point. He's saying that those lucky enough to have long life will suffer the decreasing enjoyment of it. In in verse one, chapter 12, verse one, if you jump to the second half of the verse, he says, the evil days, this isn't talking about like good and evil, this is talking about days that are unsatisfying, days that are bad. The evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then he gives us a list of metaphors. The first metaphor is light fading to darkness, a synopsis of the whole thing. As, weak, as the body becomes weaker and the mind becomes dimmer. And then he discusses, I'll try to follow the metaphors with you. In verse three, he says, the keepers of the house tremble. The keepers of the house are someone's hands and arms that used to be strong but are now arthritic. And the strong men are bent. What is someone's strong men? It's their legs That are now weak underneath the body weight. That are bent. They're bad back from old age. And the grinders cease because they are few. Those are someone's teeth. That as they have less and less teeth, it's harder to chew. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. What do you think the windows of the body are? Our eyes. Our eyesight starts going bad. Verse 4. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of grinding is low. The doors of the street represent the ears that even the loud noise of grinding is hard to hear. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. Maybe that's insomnia. Maybe that's someone waking up early. And all the daughters of song are brought low. This represents the vocal cords. that, as they wear out, it makes it harder and harder to sing. Verse five, and they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way, representing the paranoia that some people have as they get older towards the end of their lives. And the almond tree blossoms. Think of white flowers. What do you think that represents? Gray hair. And the grasshopper drags itself along. Someone who is spry is now moving slowly and walking awkwardly. And the desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. His desire, his zeal for life, maybe his libido, It desire is fading. And then we have this list of metaphors for death. Going to his eternal home. The mourner is going about the streets. The silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain. Or the wheel is broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth. And the spirit returns to God. And what is his conclusion? Vanity of vanities. All of this is vanity. Keep going in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher, this is Solomon, Also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with care. So it means that he sat down and he picked his words carefully. He arranged the book of Ecclesiastes on purpose, for our benefit. The preacher sought to find words of delight. This is so good. Y'all follow me. This is good. I never caught this before until today. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He set out to write motivational speeches, encouragement, something that's gonna get you really fired up and excited about life, but he had to be honest. It was what was right. It was upright for him to bypass trying to make us feel good and just speak words of truth. We have a lot of preachers today. They're a lot more excited about getting you excited and me excited than they are just giving truth because sometimes truth hurts and it's hard to hear. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. A goad is the, a, the stick that you use to keep an animal going the right direction. And the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The nails represent something that's solid, stationary, it's unmoving. So listening to wisdom keeps us moving in the right direction and keeps us stable. And I love how it says that they are given by one shepherd. Is that capitalized in your Bible? So ultimately, wisdom itself is not from any man. It's by our shepherd. Why, of all the titles of God, do you think Solomon chooses the word shepherd? Jesus is the lamb? lamb. Keep going. Keep thinking. Why does he choose the word shepherd? He could have called him God. He could have called him the Lord. He could have called him Jehovah Jireh. Why? Why shepherd? Because we're sheep, but that makes him our shepherd. What's a shepherd do? He leads them. He takes care of them. He feeds them. He protects them. Solomon, as he writes, verse 11, is thinking of his father's poem, his father's psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? My shepherd is with me. Your rod, that's the the goad that we just talked about, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so, amidst all this wisdom, amidst difficult truths and hard things to swallow, we need to know that we have a shepherd and that the wisdom that we're receiving is not from someone who wants to depress us, not from someone who wants to kick us down, but from someone who's saying, I need you to wake up right now. I need you to think differently. You spend so much time spinning your wheels after things that have no value, but your shepherd cares, and he's trying to goad us and direct us back to something that has meaning and purpose and eternal, lasting value. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Be careful of anyone who is trying to tell you contrary from what the shepherd teaches you, no matter how many books they write. And verse 13, we'll get there in a minute. There's three conclusions that Solomon brings out. If death is inevitable, if it's real, if it's going to happen for all of us, then this demands a response. And there's three conclusions that Solomon pulls out. Is anyone nerdy enough that you actually read the novel Peter Pan? Anyone? No? No? Just me? No. There's this great scene, and Peter Pan is tied to a rock, and the water is rising, and it looks like he's gonna drown. And in that moment, as Peter Pan is facing what he is pretty sure is gonna be the end, he has this beautiful quote. He says, To die would be a great adventure. What a great perspective. And the movie Hook that came out when I was a kid with Robin Williams, at the very end, the very last line, they grabbed that line from the novel and they tweaked it just a little bit. He had been reunited with his family. And he leans out the window with with this loving atmosphere around him and he says, to live would be a great adventure. The first truth that we grab a hold of when we face the inevitable reality of death is that we live life to the fullest. In chapter nine, verses seven through 10, Solomon says, eat well, wear nice clothes, enjoy your marriage to the fullest. Slow down, appreciate today. In chapter 11, he says, enjoy the fruit of your labor. Quit being lazy, give generously, stop procrastinating, stop missing opportunities. Solomon isn't saying to be a hedonist where you spend your life chasing happiness and pleasure. He ruled that out in chapter two. But what he's saying is if a person has wealth and honor and a hundred children and lives 2,000 years, but they never find contentment or satisfaction, their life is wasted. Why? Because everyone dies. You might as well savor every minute. And if I can touch on last week, every minute includes every season. And as we read through chapter three, one through 17 last week, we see there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to go to war and a time for peace, a time to tear and a time to sow. And you're walking through all of these seasons. And some of these seasons we deem as good and some of these seasons we deem as bad. But whenever we face death as an inevitable reality, it challenges us to find hope, hope, And contentment, even in the seasons that are painful. To allow them to shape us and mold us. To lean into them and to feel them for what they are. Because those seasons are not random. They're not arbitrary. They're not mindless. Those seasons are on behalf of our creator God, who is the force behind them, behind the changes of the seasons. It says that he makes every one of those seasons beautiful in his time. True Christian maturity, which I have not yet personally reached. So I'm I'm saying, let's get on board and go together. Not, I've arrived, come come see me. We're doing this together here. But true Christian maturity embraces and grows from each season that it's in. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. In the last quarter of your Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Listen to how Paul responds to life's changing seasons, those that he deems good and those that he deems bad. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am to be content, whatever season I'm in to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is it that he can do? He can have contentment in every season. Whether it's a season to be born or die, to plant or rip up what's planted, to kill or heal, to break down or build up, to weep or laugh, to mourn or dance, to cast away or to gather, to embrace or refrain from embracing, to seek, to lose, to keep, to cast away, to tear, to sow, to be quiet, or to speak, to love, to hate, for war or for peace. Because he can do all things for Christ through Christ, he can find contentment in every season. Death doesn't make life meaningless. It motivates us to live to the fullest. Two, because death is a reality, Solomon teaches us To choose our creator today. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. We skipped over it a second ago. He says this. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. In the days of your youth. Jump forward to verse 13. He says, here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. So all his wisdom has been compiled in this book. He's laid it out systematically for us. Here's the end. Here's the conclusion. Here's his application, his takeaway. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So after he's applied his wisdom, he's concluded that life and everything in it is Hevel, but there is a great pursuit that has meaning to fear God and obey his commandments. What does it mean to fear God? I'll give you a hint. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, respect, honor, follow his commandments, have knee-knocking awe of him, But no one is born to be their own master, the captain of their own ship. The fact that we have a creator means that we are born with a purpose and a responsibility to give due obedience to him, our shepherd. And to give him the awe, the reverence, the love that he deserves. If you're a Christian in here, your life does not belong to you You've been bought with a high price. We are, we are servants of the most high master and serving him is the only interest that's stable, that's lasting, that's fulfilling. But when do we serve him? 12 verse one, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. As in now, don't wait another day. While you're young, Begin to walk with him and serve him. Put him into the driver's seat now. Don't waste another day. There's a saying, and I couldn't find the author of the saying, but he said, I've made two mathematical mistakes. I've overestimated the brevity of life, and I've underestimated the length of eternity. Life is short. Commit to serving him completely today. Why is it saying youth? Why not wait until you're almost dead? I've heard many people actually say, well, look, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live my life and kind of do my thing now, you know, but then later when I get older, when I'm old, then, then I'll you know, become a Christian, I'll go to church, I'll do those things. Why not, why not live life that way? Think about this. Like, let's just think about that for a second. First it assumes that a relationship with the creator is a burden that needs to be put off. It also reveals that our understanding of a relationship with him is just for our own personal gain. I'm just going to lock in whenever my eternity is on the line because I'm, you know, I'm old. It also assumes that a life of living for self is better than living for the Lord. And finally, it assumes you know when you're gonna die. And yet Solomon says, like a snare, like a net, it can suddenly fall on you. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. This attitude only results in a wasted life of chasing heaven, versus a life of serving our creator that's full of meaning and packed with eternal investments. So live life to the fullest, Choose your creator today. And the third application of the reality of death is that those who are in Christ have no fear of death. A man or woman who fears God does not fear death. There's nothing there to fear. Ecclesiastes chapter three, it says that to everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And a few verses later, he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he has put eternity in our hearts. He is our eternity. Death is just a doorway, just a transition point, just a way station. It's just going through customs. On the other side is an eternity with our Lord, the lover of our souls, the king of all majesty. Come with me to 1 Corinthians. Go back towards Philippians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's so much hope for those who love Jesus and serve him, those who fear him and obey his commandments. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 54. Perishable means that something can be destroyed. Imperishable means that it's eternal, indestructible, okay? Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that's talking about us, whenever we die and we put on eternity, God gives us glorified bodies, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a chihuahua with no teeth. (laughs) Oh, you're cute. No nipping today. Death has nothing on someone who loves Jesus. I want to get sober for a minute and consider... For a second, what does an unbeliever lose at death? If you're in here and you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if he has not saved you, if you've not repented of your sin, I have some very difficult news for you. Attested to you by the one and only person that ever raised himself from the dead because he was the Son of God. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And these verses are laced full of hope, but I want to look at them from the angle. of What does a believer lose at death? Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. So whoever is chasing after the hevel of life, whoever is trying to make life about them, they're going to ultimately lose their life. But whoever loses his life, whoever changes their priorities and gives up their lives for the sake of Jesus, for my sake, will find it. It's a trade-off. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world And forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's four things that an unbeliever loses at death. And the first thing that an unbeliever loses is the world they clung on so much to that they forfeited their soul for it. Everything that we fight for in life, whether it's sex or money or notoriety or the house or the car or whatever it is, Everything that we fight for at death becomes pointless and moot. The very thing that an unbeliever has clung on to for so long, they lose it at death. Two, they lose heaven. The very venue of our heavenly Father's love and affection is lost. Three, they lose hope. You see, those who choose to reject Christ live in the hope that there is either not a God or that that God would be merciful to them despite their life of rejection of him. And at death, when we stand before God, there is nothing left but judgment, having lived a life of his extending mercy. There is no more mercy at death. Hope is lost. And the third is they lose their soul. There's nothing left but hell, the venue of the judge's wrath for our rebellion day in and day out, choosing self as our God instead of the creator as our God. But serving God without fear of death creates a life that is purposeful. Philippians 1 20 through 21 says, Christ will be magnified in my body. So, in my life, in all of who I am, Christ is gonna be magnified, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, if I live, I'm winning. I get to show off who, how awesome Jesus is. And if I die, I win again, because I've got nothing but his arms to look forward to. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live as Christ is to be made up of Christ, to be full of him. It's to serve him and his kingdom alone. It's to find all contentment, all joy, all fulfillment in him. To live as Christ. But a believer has everything to live for, but they also have everything to die for. Because what we have to look forward to, what we gain at death, those who are in Christ, those who have rejected sin and turned their lives to serve Jesus, they experience heaven where sin is gone. The temptation for sin is gone. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more anxiety. There's rest for our souls, peace and joy and satisfaction. And the best part for a Christian is that death is a doorway to a glorified body fitted for heaven to dwell in the presence of a holy, loving God? On every tombstone in that cemetery that I visited today, you know, there's like the name, there might be an epitaph, but there's also two dates the beginning and the end. And between them is the dash. Solomon is begging us, giving us the words of our shepherd to challenge us what we're going to do with our dash in between the beginning and the end. Will it be a life of purpose, which is a life for Christ, or is it a life for self? And that dash is as hollow and empty as it looks on the stone. Recap. It's a fact that everyone will die. Wealth, reputation, strength, hard work, even wisdom itself can't prevent it. The reality of death renders everything that people work for as hevel. But embracing the truth should motivate us to three things. One, living life, the highs and the lows to the fullest, savoring every season. Two, obeying our creator and beginning now. And three, living for God's purposes while being fearless of death. So I've got two challenges for you. The first is that if you could write your own obituary, what relationships and accomplishments would you want to be known? And my challenge is that you write a list. I'd wanna be known for this to my family, to my friends, to my coworkers. Here's the accomplishments I would want from my life. How would you write your own obituary? Challenge 1.2, or B, consider if you wrote your obituary with the truths of Ecclesiastes in mind. How would that obituary be different and make a different list? Heavenly Father, I surrender your word back to you. Thank you for Solomon. Thank you for the years of difficulty that he went through, of anger at life, of even depression, as he searched and sought and experienced the best that life had to offer so that he could speak truth to us and remind us that there is nothing that's satisfying on the other side except to serve you, to fear you, to obey you, and, Lord, to remember you today. Lord, let that be true of every man and woman in this room. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go! Follow Jesus.